And you may be seated, and uh, good morning to you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here. It's always a privilege uh, to join you in worship together. Um, this morning, we're going to return to 2 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. I invite you to follow along uh, as I read. Paul writes, make room in your hearts for us. We have, no, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the ones who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And now, Father, what we know not teach us what we are not make us, and what we have not give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My family and I have been blessed to live in a humble ranch-style home uh, located in a pretty charming neighborhood since we moved here to Erie from Ohio uh, eight years ago. Um, the, the house itself is about 17 years old. It's not incredibly old, but it, it served us well over the time to the point where we have no intention on moving to another neighborhood anytime soon. Um, but the house is definitely starting to show its age. And, and what I mean by that is that several things within the house are beginning to break. <laughs> several systems are, are, are breaking, which is very problematic for a guy like me that does not have a repairman's bone in his body. So I find myself often calling a repairman or more often because I'm cheap watching YouTube videos to, to try and fix these things that are, that are breaking. 
I hope you can relate. We do this when things break, right? Because in order for any appliance or system to function in the way that it's designed, it must be restored. If not repaired, if not restored, it will never return to the full functionality that it once had. And if I'm the one repairing it, it will never return to the full functionality that it once had. All jokes aside, this can actually, the same can be said of relationships, right? If there is some kind of a break or a rift or a fracture between two people, the relationship will fail to be fully functional and effective until the relationship is restored. I have found that many times, if there is even a question of uncertainty between me and somebody else, I will go to that person and I will ask them the question, are you and I okay? Are we okay? Is there anything between us right now? If there's ever been conflict between you and another person, it's always good to to go to them and sit down with them and eventually have the conversation where you ask the question, where do we stand? Where do we stand with one another? What is the state of our relationship? The passage that we just read, that is the type of communication that Paul has here with, with the people in Corinth, with the church in Corinth where he stands in relationship to them. In the coming weeks, in chapters 8 and 9, if you were feeling um, like a star student and wanted to read ahead, you'll find that Paul goes on to pursue an unfinished ministry endeavor with the Corinthians, but there's something that needs to be done first. There's something that needs to be said before he gets there. He needs to close the chapter on his fractured relationship with the Corinthians. He needs to make it very clear where they stand with each other. To this point, we've, we've spent a great de- degree of time examining that Paul has had to say something, right? Paul has said what he needed to say, and now he needs to bring closure to the matter. And to our surprise, we actually find great encouragement in the passage. If you've been with us since April, we've been walking through 2 Corinthians together and we have spoken ad nauseum about the rocky relationship between the Corinthians and and, and Paul. But it would serve us well here this morning to um, remind ourselves to specifically what happened between the two. If you recall, Paul on one occasion had visited the church of Corinth. This was a church that he planted. He went away. And after some time away, he had received word that things were not going well in the church. They believed weird things, odd things. They were being influenced by other people. They were practicing things that no Christian should practice. And so Paul, in an attempt to correct what's going on in the Corinthian church, goes to visit them. And the visit did not go well. We get the idea that a portion of the church or at least one individual who had been influenced by these outside false preachers had publicly challenged Paul and questioned the legitimacy of his ministry. And they questioned the legitimacy of his role as an apostle, as a messenger of Jesus. And they did this in a public manner, all while the rest of the church just kind of let it happen. Nobody came to Paul's defense. They all sat 
idly by and let Paul come under attack. Paul refers to this back in chapter 2 as a painful visit. This was a painful visit. Paul was wounded and he was devastated when he left Corinth to the point that instead of making a promised return to Corinth, out of mercy, he says, he instead writes them a severe letter of rebuke addressing the very situation, illuminating their sin, bringing the situation to light. And it seems as though this harsh letter of rebuke was delivered by Paul's ministry partner, Titus. And once again, if you recall back in chapter 2, Paul begins to tell this story uh, about, about Titus that he hasn't finished to this point. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Paul recounts, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So this is, this is the picture that we get, right? That before Paul sent Titus to Corinth, they agreed to meet in the city of Troas. Titus, take this letter, address it to the Corinthians, and then come back to report to me in Troas. Tell me how they responded to this severe letter of rebuke. And so Paul's in Troas, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and Titus never shows up. And so almost in a panic, Paul travels to Macedonia because Titus would have to travel through Macedonia to get to Troas. And what Paul is doing, he's trying to shortcut Titus's journey back. He's trying to catch him on the way back. And this is the last time we hear about Titus up until this point in 2 Corinthians. We're sort of left with a cliffhanger here. So to this point in the letter, we don't, we know a little bit, but we don't fully know how the church responded to Paul's severe letter. And the Corinthians who would originally read this, they didn't know how Paul responded to their response of the severe letter. And so everybody's kind of on pins and needles here trying to figure out what happened. What happened to Titus? How did the Corinthians fully respond? And how does Paul respond to the Corinthians? We're left in suspense. And so Paul fills in the gaps here in our passage by clearly articulating where he and the Corinthians stand with one another. Now to this point, Paul has defended himself thoroughly and he's defended his ministry thoroughly at length. And so in retrospect, as we read this, and as the Corinthians would have originally read this, it would be very easy for them to perceive uh, in his writing that Paul is actually passing further judgment on them, that he's being harsh. And so in an effort to not be misunderstood, Paul brings clarity in verse 3 when he says, I'm not saying this to condemn you. I don't say this to condemn you. I'm not passing judgment on you. Why? Because you're in our hearts. I've said it once. And I'll say it again, you're in our hearts. We die together, we live together. That phrase right there, it's, it's a statement of enduring friendship. It's, it's a statement of unflinching loyalty to the Corinthians. Paul is loyal to the Corinthians so much so that it says that he has great boldness towards the Corinthians. 
Or in other words, he boasts about them to other people. He, he tells his friends all about the Corinthians and who they are in Christ. If you remember, he says the Corinthians are his letter of recommendation, right? They are also a source of comfort. They are a source of ever exceeding joy to Paul that we see in verse four. And so it's very clear that something has transpired, that there has been a shift in Paul's temperament toward the Corinthians. Because keep in mind, the last time that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it was a harsh and severe letter. And Paul, back in chapter two, once again, talks about how he felt when he wrote this letter. He says that he wrote that letter out of much affliction, out of anguish in the heart. He wrote that letter with many tears. The Corinthians, when they read that harsh letter, probably saw the, 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 the tear stains on the pages, on the parchment. Yet Paul, in writing 2 Corinthians, which we've studied through, has a much different disposition now. And so what happened? How did Paul go from writing one letter out of anguish and affliction and tears to writing this letter in confidence and in comfort and in joy? What occurred between the two letters? Well, Paul tells us what happened, starting in verse 5. He gives us some background about his own personal state. He, he picks up the story and he explains that when he came into Macedonia, his body had no rest and they were afflicted at every turn. Paul could not escape in this situation duress. There was no place for him to find respite. There was no place for him where he did not experience some kind of tension. And they experienced in they experienced the tension in two different ways. One from fighting without, two from fear within. Fighting without, it most likely means that he was experiencing persecution or conflict from unbelievers, which was fairly typical for Paul when he traveled to a new city. That's what fighting from without is. It's a conflict from the outward. There, there were external struggles that were outside of his control. But along with the external struggles, there were also inward struggles. There was fear within. Paul had a certain level of anxiety that brewed deep within his soul. And this should come as no surprise to us. Because consider all the questions that are probably running through Paul's mind as he arrives to Macedonia. Where is Titus? Why didn't he meet me in Troas? Why was his journey delayed? Was he apprehended by thieves on the road back? What did the Corinthians think? Did they respond poorly towards Titus as my messenger? What have they done to him? What did the Corinthians think of my severe letter? Was I too harsh? Maybe I shouldn't have said that one thing. Have I caused irreparable damage? Will our relationship ever be restored? Will I ever be able to show my face in Corinth again? These are all fears that Paul could have had within. Fighting without and fear within. And from those experiences, he was just physically spent. 
from tension coming at him from around every corner. In verse 6, he actually likens his condition to being downcast. That means to be in a very low position, the lowest that you can get. Paul was in a deep, dark pit. We would describe it as depression. That is the state of Paul in Macedonia. But here's the good news. Despite his downcast soul, Paul writes, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. His low position is remedied in an instant when Titus finally shows up. You get this sort of picture of a a rush of emotion as Paul joyously embraces Titus. He sees Titus and he says, Titus, you're safe. Titus, you're alive. Oh, Titus, what what a sight for sore eyes you are. My brother, I'm so happy to to see you. You're okay. His mere presence was enough to console Paul. But what made it even better and even more comforting is that Titus brought back a good report from the Corinthians. What a beautiful scene as they embrace each other. And you'll notice too, as a side note, that Paul observes his situation theologically, right? But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us. Sure, Titus was the agent of comfort, but God was the source. God used Titus in this moment to comfort Paul because it's who God is. It's in his very nature. It's in his very character to comfort the downcast. Too often, We are quick to blame God for our disappointments and our discouragements and the letdowns of life. But we are much too slow to give him credit for our comforts. But not Paul. He absolutely knows that the source of his comfort is God, who has, as he has written, the God of all comfort. And so... Moving on in the story after describing, describing the comfort he received from God through Titus and the Corinthians' reaction, Paul actually turns his attention to this severe letter that he wrote, and he actually offers comment on it. He, he wants to talk about it. He, he speaks in verse 8 about how this severe letter grieved the Corinthians. And of course it would, because Paul exposed their sin. That's never a pleasant thing. That's a hard conversation, and it should make one sad. To to the point where Paul says, I I did regret sending you that letter for for a little bit because I don't like making you sad. I I don't really want to have this conversation. This is a hard conversation, and if I didn't regret it a little bit, it would just be my bitterness showing. No, it's not fun to illuminate someone's sin, which will grieve them but sometimes it's necessary, which is Paul's point. You say, I may have regretted it a little bit because I don't want to make you sad, but overall I don't regret it. Why? Because you were grieved into repenting. Your sorrow served a purpose. And so, Church of Corinth, this is not an apology for what I said nor am I entirely concerned about your feelings. I have no qualms 
uh, with, with this letter and what I said because it achieved its desired result, which was repentance. Now, if you're unsure what repentance is or what it looks like, the picture that we get is that of a, of a, of a turning. It's a changing of direction. It's walking down one path, realizing you're walking the wrong way, and then turning and walking the right way down the path. That's what repentance is. In the context of our passage today, the Corinthians had in some way sinned against Paul. So Paul illuminates their sin to them in the form of a harsh letter. They are greatly grieved by the letter, but they are grieved to a point of action. They saw their sin for what it truly was against Paul, and they changed. They they turned. They repented. And because they had repented, Paul is able to deduce that the grief they experienced was was what Paul calls a godly grief. Or, Or in other words, a grief that God intends. Now that's a peculiar thought. Wait a minute. Now you mean to tell me that sometimes God intends for me to be sad. I thought God wanted the best for me. So why on earth would God want me to be sad? Why does he intend for us to be sad sometimes? Because that's what it takes for us to turn from our sin. We must realize that our happiness, as we understand happiness in the flesh, is not God's ultimate priority for us. Our holiness is. In a certain kind of grief is an essential step in holiness. And Paul embedded into this uh, story gives us this rich theological text about the two, right? And he tells them, the Corinthians, hey, you experienced a good kind of grief, grief. But, but there is another kind of grief, a grief that God doesn't intend, and that is a worldly grief. And it's a grief that doesn't lead to repentance, which leads to salvation, but leads to death. For us here this morning, it is absolutely critical to understand the difference between the two because there is not a single soul in this room that has not experienced one of the two, if not both at times, the kinds of grief. So let's look into that a little bit. A worldly grief. This is a sorrow centered on the self. It turns inward. It grieves over consequences. It is a self-pitying grief. We, we are sorry that we got caught. We are sorry that we got knocked down a few notches in the eyes of other people. Worldly grief plays the blame game. It doesn't take responsibility for their own sin, but rather it often seeks to justify it. It, it says, well, this is just a rotten situation and I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for what I thought. I'm sorry for how I acted, but you know what? This would have never happened if you didn't do this or this would have never happened if my circumstances were a little bit different. This would have never happened if I was dealt another hand of cards. There's almost a victim mentality to it. And a worldly sorrow, as I mentioned, leads to death. 
It doesn't lead to that repentance. It doesn't lead to that turning. It leads to you. It actually, you're walking the wrong way and the worldly grief just speeds up the process. You go from walking at a leisurely place, maybe to jogging. And as you experience worldly grief, then you are now running. It just speeds up the process. Meaning, as one author wrote, that it leads to death. It brings death because it breeds self-destructive resentment and bitterness that eat away at the person. That's how it speeds the process along. The author actually who wrote that uses the illustration of a rattlesnake where it said that if you corner a rattlesnake, it will sometimes become so frustrated and so upset that it will bite itself. A worldly grief is one that bites itself. Now, the best explanation that I came across in my own reading of the two different kinds of grief is that worldly sorrow, worldly grief is a grief that says, I have missed out on something that the world has to offer. I have lost something of the world. But a godly grief says, oh my, I have lost something of God. I've lost something of the almighty God. Godly sorrow doesn't grieve over consequences. It grieves over the sting. It grieves over how we have sinned against a perfect and holy, holy God. It sees sin for the ugly atrocity that it is. Godly grief comes to grips with the fact that sin is not just merely a bad thing, which wrecks our lives. It's not just a bad habit. It's not just something which keeps us from living our best life now. No, sin is a flagrant violation of God's perfect, holy order. It's a rejection of his lordship. It is a rejection of his kingship. It is a rejection of his character. And godly grief doesn't play the blame game, but recognizes that I and I alone am ultimately responsible for my rebellion against God. Ultimately, it is my sin that is written on my heart that needs to be taken care of regardless of the circumstance. Godly grief says, Lord, have mercy on me because I have sinned against you. You see, once we recognize sin for the repulsiveness that it is, we will hate it. And once we hate it, we are more inclined to run away from it. That is godly grief. That is sorrow that God intends for us to have because it drives us to him. You want to know what God's will and intention is for your life? A lot of people ask that question. What is God's will for my life? I'll tell you what it is. It's repentance. And the strongest expression of our love towards God is repentance. More than your willingness to serve, more than your unfathomable act of generosity, more than your lofty aspirations for kingdom advancement, the greatest expression or act of love towards God 
is turning away from our sin. Because it was our sin that cost Jesus his life. This is how we know this to be true, that, that, that claim that I just made. We know from Scripture that the greatest expression of God's love for us was in the giving of his son Jesus, so that we may be washed of our sin. So why wouldn't the greatest expression of our love toward God be repentance? Do you want to love God? Turn from your sin. It's the greatest way to show him that you love him and that he has transformed you. And this is how serious repentance is in that there are ties to salvation in it. That's what Paul writes, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. If you were to go to Acts chapter 2, Peter One of the apostles, he's preaching the good news of Jesus to the masses. And he gets done with his sermon. And it says that the people were cut to the heart, meaning that they were emotionally stirred. And more importantly, they were emotionally, they were fearful. And they asked Peter, what do we do about this? You've just shared us this message. We're in trouble. What, What do we do? And what did Peter say? Repent. Repent. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness, uh, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do that, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Only God can judge the heart. But there are grounds to say that if repentance is absent in one's life, then there may be evidence to suggest that one doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Once again, grief is different than repentance. If you are merely remorseful or sad, but unwilling to change, you might be forced to ask the question, is the spirit of the living God really residing in my heart? Is he really at the helm, despite what you say? In a moment, this text will give us what we call an assurance of salvation. And there is assurance of salvation written all over Scripture. And and there are many believers that need, that struggle with this. They need to hear assurance of salvation. They need to cling to it. But on the other side of that coin, there may be some of us who are assured of salvation who maybe shouldn't be because of an absence of repentance. Has the Spirit transformed my heart as such where I want to run away from sin instead of embracing it? And so it begs the question, you might be sitting here and saying, wait a minute, you've put a seed of doubt in my mind. How do I know? How do I know? Well, Paul actually helps us out here in verse 11. He gives us quick practical examples of how he knew that the Corinthians had truly repented. We'll walk through these briefly. These are attitudes that bear witness that they had truly turned. Their repentance, if you will, was verified in seven ways. First, the godly grief produced an earnestness. Another word we could use here is diligence. It was a diligence, an attitude of hastiness to make things right. They were not slow in their dealings. They were quick to try and resolve the situation. They weren't just going to sit around and hope that the issue would resolve itself like many of us do. You think if I just don't address it, it'll just go away. 
That won't happen. It'll never happen until it's addressed. They, they were earnest though. Uh, second, they were eager. They had an eagerness to clear themselves. The, the literal word here is that they actually gave a defense. They wanted to defend something, right? They, they weren't defending their actions in the situation, but they were defending something. They, they essentially wanted to prove that they did indeed have the spirit of the living God. Because there was speculation that maybe they weren't true believers. So they wanted to defend their faith and show that their faith was genuine and legitimate. Number three, what indignation, Paul writes. They displayed an irritation that their sin manifested itself in such a way they were annoyed that their flesh got the best of them. Fourth, what fear. Now this was most likely a fear for Paul a fear about the condition of Paul. Titus, is Paul okay? We we had no idea that we had hurt him in such a way. We didn't know we were doing something wrong. How is Paul? Is he going to be all right? We didn't know we deeply hurt him in such a way. The repentance has more of a concern for the other person and their well-being than your own. Fifth, what longing or what earnest desire? Sometimes we can sin against someone. And we can even feel bad about it, but we have no idea, no desire to make it right. We can recognize the conflict and even recognize our part in it, but we have no desire to restore the relationship to the point where when you see the person in public or in a gathering or at home or at school or at church, there's just like this awkward tension. And you pull one of these and you think, just, I just don't want to make eye contact. You just don't look this way. Maybe we can talk and, you know, do some light talk, but we're not going to, we're not going to go there. You'd rather shy away from them and cower in the shadows rather than reconciling. Not so with the Corinthians, there was longing. Six, their repentance was verified by their zeal. What zeal? This is an intense pursuit. You see, the the ball was not in Paul's court. The ball was in their court, and they knew it, so they took action. Once their sin was illuminated, whether they were aware of it or not, before the harsh letter, it was illuminated. They pursued Paul, not the other way around. Some who have sinned against others sit back, and they say, well, they know where to find me. If they really want to reconcile, they know where to find me. I'll be waiting for them. No, if you have hurt someone, if you have acted sinfully towards someone, true repentance is seeking them out. What zeal? I'm going to seek you out to make it right. And finally, what punishment? What punishment? Um, one commentator says that this language is judicial in nature. They, they, they demonstrated repentance by punishing the sin of Paul's primary offender in the altercation. We saw this back in chapter two. There seemed to be one instigator on the matter, but the rest of the church stood by and let it happen. And now the rest of the church just saw it fit not to be passive, but active, to, to punish the one who was primarily at, at fault. They sought to right a wrong, if you will. They, they wanted to see justice carried out in the situation. 
all of these actions and attitudes that were manifested in their spirits authenticated their repentance to the point where in verse 11, Paul can declare confidently at every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Now, this doesn't mean that they, that they weren't guilty at one point. It doesn't mean that they hadn't sinned against Paul. It doesn't mean that there was some kind of misunderstanding and Paul says, oh, sorry, this was just a mistake. No, they had sinned, they repented, and now Paul is declaring them innocent in the matter. It means that the relationship has been restored. It means that Paul no longer views them as guilty. It means that Paul no longer holds this against them. And more importantly, having repented, their own attitudes and action serve as evidence that God is indeed at work in their lives, that their hearts truly were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in verse 12, I I didn't write that harsh letter for the sake of the main offender, that he would just get his due, that he would get punished. I didn't write that letter for, for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Or in other words, he didn't write to avenge himself. No, Paul writes the letter. Why? In order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. That's your assurance of salvation. The Corinthians needed to see that they were indeed genuine and their true repentance proved this. They could be sure that their relationship with Paul was restored and secure because of their response to the harsh letter. And Paul says, I didn't even need to be assured of this because he boasted about the Corinthians, right? Verses 13 through 15. Paul basically says, I always believed that you were who you say, said you were. You, you didn't have to convince me. I, I believed you, you were who you said you were so much that I actually bragged to you to Titus. I told Titus. Titus was a little nervous. He wasn't so sure, but I told Titus, this is how you would react to the, to the letter. I, I told Titus when I sent him on his way, this is how you would respond. I know that you're true believers and, and, and Titus, this letter will prove it. You just wait and see. In the same way, our repentance is one of the many ways that we know that our relationship with God is secure. Our repentance and how we deal with our sin moving forward is one of the many ways that we are assured of our salvation. The relationship between the Corinthians and Paul has been restored. And they are sure of it. It is clear now where their relationship stands and now they can move on. And Paul says in verse 16 that he has complete confidence in the Corinthians. No longer having anything stand between them. Paul has complete confidence, not just that they can move on, but confidence in the Corinthians themselves, that they can be fruitful in their ministry endeavors, which we will look to in the coming weeks. Basically, Paul is not afraid to call on the Corinthians to action because he is convinced of their genuine standing as believers. Having those things now behind them and having the Corinthians' record now cleared, they can move forward in ministry in confidence. How Paul receives the Corinthians here is a micro-example for how God 
receives us in Christ. For those of us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that realize how ugly and evil and grievous our sin is against the Almighty God, those of us who experience deep sorrow from our sin and then turn to God, those are the ones who can faithfully trust that God has forgiven them and has received them with open arms. And as believers in Jesus, I tell you, as we come into a reconciled relationship with God, the sin that is written on our hearts, which has separated us from God, is no more. We have been declared innocent in the matter. Our sin is behind us. God has cast it into the deepest of seas, and he no longer holds it against us. Your sin and your failures and your shortcomings, past, present, and future, that cling to your mind, like a poison, they no longer have any power over you if you have turned to Christ and have trusted him for your salvation. You've been declared innocent in the eyes of a holy and almighty God. Would you pray with me? And Father, with help from the Book of Common Prayer, we come to you as an almighty Father and most merciful Father. We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much of the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And so, Lord... Have mercy on us as miserable offenders. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are repentant according to your promises that were declared to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And merciful Father, grant to us for Christ's sake that we may from this point on live a godly and righteous life to the glory of your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.